Hi, I'm Dr. Avanti Kumar Singh. In over 20 years of practicing both Western medicine and Eastern healing traditions, the most important thing that I've learned is that healing is a journey we take together. So on this podcast, I'll be demystifying Ayurveda and other integrated medicine, showing how these simple ancient practices are the keys to unlocking a healthy modern life. We are all healing catalysts because healing starts within. It starts with you and it starts right now. This is a Soulfire production. Episode number 82. Hello, my beautiful friends. Welcome back to the Healing Catalyst podcast. Today, we're continuing with our new series on the podcast called Go Deeper. Now, this series was inspired by all of you, our amazing community of listeners, asking for more Ayurveda and yoga knowledge to really go deeper on a specific topic so that you can learn and understand more about these healing modalities. And of course, I thought that it would be even more helpful to all of you For me to talk to other experts in Ayurveda and yoga for these episodes, other Ayurvedic and yoga practitioners, many of whom I consider my mentors and teachers as well. And so today, Indu Aurora is back with me again. Indu was first on my podcast last year to talk about marma therapy and energy medicine. And that episode is linked in the show notes for you. And today she's here to talk to me about rest, sleep, and the practice of Shavasana. Indu is an Ayurveda and yoga therapist who considers herself a student for lifetime before all else. She's been teaching yoga philosophy, yoga therapy, and Ayurveda for over two decades since 1999. And she's studied both yoga and Ayurveda in India in a traditional Guru Parampara setting. Her teaching style is rooted in empowering and inspiring her students to awaken the inner Guru. Her core philosophy is nothing has the greatest power to heal but the self. She's an international speaker and teacher and is the author of three books, including her most recent, Yoga, Ancient Heritage, Tomorrow's Vision. In our conversation today, we talk about the difference between rest and sleep from an Ayurvedic perspective. We also dive into the various sleep stages, the brain waves that are present in each stage, and how these different stages correlate to meditation. Indu also shares a deeper understanding of the practice of Shavasana, the profound benefits of this pose that many people think is simply the rest pose at the end of a yoga practice, and how we can practice Shavasana for not just physical symptoms, but more importantly, for emotional healing and spiritual evolution. You know, every time I talk to Indu, I learn so much from her that broadens my perspective and deepens my understanding of yoga and Ayurveda. And for this, I am so incredibly grateful to her. My conversations with Indu are so special to me because Indu was one of my first teachers and mentors when I started my three-year-long yoga therapy training, and she's helped me personally with some of the most difficult challenges that I've had in my life. Since then, she's become a dear friend, mentor, and guide, and an unconditional supporter of my work, for which I am so incredibly grateful. I am so deeply honored to have Indu Aurora back on the podcast again to go deeper, to talk about sleep, rest, and the practice of Shavasana. Well, hello, Indu. It is so lovely to have you back on the podcast. I'm so honored that you are taking some time out of your very busy schedule to be with me again for a deeper dive into some really interesting topics for this listening community. So thank you for doing this with me. I appreciate it. 
Thank you so much, Avanti, for having me back at the Healing Catalyst podcast. It is a pleasure to converse with you and through you to many. Oh, thank you so much. I feel more honored to have your wisdom on this podcast, but we've been talking back and forth over email about a few different topics, and we sort of settled on really talking about the ideas of sleep and rest and Shavasana. We were going to talk a little more about yoga nidra, but we decided let's do that topic at another time because it's a little more advanced, but we're going to start here as a foundation. And so we're going to jump in because I think that so many people are confused, first of all, by some of the poses, some of the asana that they do in yoga classes and the purpose of them. And then so many people are so sleep deprived, rest deprived. I thought this would be a really interesting topic because I think there are so many beautiful and powerful practices in Ayurveda and yoga that can provide that opportunity for people. And so I thought, let's really dive into this topic. So I'm so excited to talk to you because you have so much knowledge in this area. And I know it's a topic that is of great interest to you as well. Uh, you've written a lot. You've done a lot of trainings on it. So this is going to be great. I'm excited. <laughs> yeah, I'm looking forward to, to share on rest and Shavasana and sleep and what are they and if there is something coinciding in them and, and if there is a confusion related mm -hmm. to them. That's great. And so let's start at the beginning with the assumption that, you know, many of us don't understand really what is Shavasana. Let's start there because it's the pose that we do at the end of many Western yoga classes and Eastern as well, but it's used as sort of an ending to a yoga class. And many people believe that it's, you know, for rest. Is it for a little nap? Is it you know, the way that it's just convenient to end a yoga class. Many people think that they don't need to do it. So let's clear up some of that confusion. So what is it exactly? I think that's a great place to start, Avanti. The beauty about Samskrita, the, the language in which the yogic texts are written, is that, that the language itself is a pointer. The language itself is something that we call is Sanket Vidya that it's, it's a compass, it's a pointer that's automatically pointing you towards what does it mean. And the word Shavasana, it has two different connotations. One is that it is an asana, it is a body position, it is a position that we give to the body. But when we just stop there, that is when we are not understanding it completely. The other aspect of Shavasana, which is the more deeper and I would say uh, that is the purpose of Shav Asan, is to, it's almost like a death rehearsal. Now, I know this topic may sound like, oh my God, we are going into death. And it is, it's a topic, it's a word that we cringe. It's, it's a word that we contract. It's a word that we don't want to hear, don't want to speak. But irrespective of how much we want to turn away from it, it is inevitable. And the yogis and the yoginis, they lived in truth. They did not avoid these realities of life. They, in fact, invited it. So the purpose of Shavasana is not just to give the position to the body. It is about the state. It is about, for a moment, mimicking that state of non-doing. And that non-doing invites so many other things. Non-doing is a process. We have to 
undo all the processes that the body is so used to doing. Our hands are so used to grasping, holding, reaching out, doing something. Our feet are so programmed to walking towards, walking away from something. We are, every part of our body is so programmed to do something that undoing takes a lot of learning or unlearning, may I say. Undoing, undoing takes a lot of courage too. Because we are constantly in that fear that if I don't speak or if I don't do or if I don't multitask, I'm going to miss out on so many things. And Shavasan is that opportunity to face to some extent that fear, that programming, that uh, faulty programming to some extent, because just doing does not lead us somewhere. It is so much of undoing that untangles so many things in our body and in our mind that eventually clears the path for us to move forward. So Shavasana is about that conscious pause, that conscious redirection, that conscious U-turn that you give to your senses, that eyes don't look outside, ears don't hear anything from outside, not even the mental chatter. But for a moment, let's just cut off from all this stimulus and be in that place of undoing. That is the purpose of Shavasana. And when we are there, so many of the things, so many of the deep-seated fears, they come up. But because of that state of relaxation, it allows us to digest that and move forward. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I love that idea of undoing and unlearning the doing or undoing and unlearning. It's such an interesting concept because it's so sort of antithetical to the way we think in Western society. We're always do, 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 learn, 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 progress, progress, progress. And you're actually suggesting that this is the opposite. But I suspect that in the undoing and in the unlearning, there's actually great growth and great advancement for a soul in that process. So it's actually not really not doing something. <laughs> You're doing something that's of great value to your soul. You know, let's take that example, Avanti. I like to pick mm. examples from everyday life. Mm -hmm. If we have prepared anything that is fermented or marinated something while we are cooking, we know that while some food is marinating, it is not just nothing is happening. In fact, juices are seeping more deeper in. In that moment, that food becomes like a sponge and it absorbs everything. Or if we prepare a pickle, you know, or in Indian foods, when we prepare ghee, clarified butter, we say that the more, the older the ghee is, which is in the non-doing state, there is a so much doing that's happening that it becomes medicinal, that ordinary food becomes medicinal. So in that, I, I, I like to put it this way that, you know, we have so many suppressed, repressed, unresolved thoughts and emotions that we just keep shoving away. And that prepares almost like a, a pickle of thought in our heads and they kind of bubble up in our dreams. And then we wonder, oh, what was that dream all about? And then we start chasing and reading about what is the symbology of the dream. No, it is just the bubbling. These are, these are, now I'm on the podcast, I understand, but I'm going to say it as it is. These are like the tiny burps of thoughts that come up where our sleep is trying through dream process it. But what if we consciously give that space for that processing 
for that marinating, understanding its value, that it has a much deeper value than we can possibly at present logically understand. We always look forward to which I understand is very, very essential that we look for, oh, what does the science say about it? And science is still trying to understand the brain. And that is almost every day something new that comes up. So I'm not talking about not believing in science. I'm saying that believe in these texts too, that there is these practices that were practiced in the mind and the body of these yogis, of these practitioners, and thousands of years old wisdom is still valid. What is there in it? So maybe we can give a little bit of surrender and a nod and a tip of the hat to them and do them and taste for ourselves and experience for ourselves that this non-doing is a lot of doing. It requires a lot of courage to start with. It requires a lot of patience to start with. And in a way, it becomes a kind of test that can I be absolutely still for the next five minutes? Do I have that much of courage or patience? And if at all something starts to bother me, what starts to bother me? Is it coming from the body? Is it a pain and ache? Maybe I'm not even listening to my body. So it becomes an opportunity to actually strengthen that wiring, that interoception where I am in touch with my own bodily physiological responses. Or maybe in those five minutes, some thought that I'm shoving away comes up. So I think it becomes a stronger pathway of communication to our own body, with our own mind, with our own thoughts, because we give that break, because we give that pause. Right. And so I'm immediately going to, you know, start thinking about brain waves and, you know, the, what's going on in the brain and the sleep and all that. And we'll get into that because some thoughts are coming to my mind, but I want to click into something else that you were saying is that I understand that what it is, is that it's this state of undoing, unlearning, but at the same time, then, is the purpose to undo, like, is it different than what it is? Do you see there's two different things and maybe they're the same. But to me, I'm thinking that that may be a little bit different, that what it is versus what is the purpose of it. Could you explain that? I see your question. Yes, yes. I absolutely see your question. And I really appreciate the precision of your question. Yes. At present, what we have chosen to digest about Shavasana is that it is a recipe for rest. Or as you mentioned, a two-minute practice by the end of the class. Um, or a time for nap. You know, a time when there is no instruction and you just lay down and you don't know what's happening and you don't know what to do. And then it's awkward. But anyways, you do it just thinking that maybe there is a benefit to it. What is the original purpose of Shavasana? The purpose of Shavasana is threefold. One, now I'm going to speak in some yogic terms or some terms that are commonly used in uh, the yogic scriptures. One purpose of Shavasana is it is a tangible practice of Pratyahar. Can you define that? Absolutely. So Pratyahara, let's break down the word. Pratyahara is made up of two parts, prati and ahara. Prati means the opposite direction or reverse direction. And ahara means food. Now, prati, the food, what kind of food? The food here is the sensory food. What is a sensory food? 
visual food through the eyes, the olfactory food through the nostrils, the auditory food through the ears, the kinesthetic food through the skin, hmm? so or the gustatory food through the tongue. All this sensory stimulus is, this is the food. Now, we are constantly, we are wired to constantly respond and react to this external food that we are, our mind is constantly engaged with. In pratyahar, instead of recognizing and connecting and reacting or responding to this external stimuli, for that time period, you direct, it's almost like you direct everything inside. So instead of listening to the sounds from outside, for that moment, you're listening to your breath. Instead of smelling the fragrances that are around you, in the moment you're paying attention to the fragrance of your own breath or the touch of your own breath, or the visual pathway of your own breath. So you have immediately kind of turned it in, and then you keep turning it in. So instead of breath, now you take towards the thoughts, and then you pay attention, oh, what kind of visuals are the thoughts that in my mind I present are, you know, presenting. So you kind of keep moving inwards. This moving inwards is pratyahar. And this practice happens, and we can possibly pull all the five sensory organs or sensory stimuli, pick them from within only when the body is still. Because as much as soon as the eyes are open, as soon as the body moves, we will constantly respond to those signals of touch or sound or visuals. So the ideal position for practicing it is either supine or prone or reclined or on the side, whichever it is, but with gravity so that you can completely let go of your physical body. That is pratyahar. That is one of the functions. And the purpose of pratyahar is to release and to reduce sensory overload. In I'm talking modern, modern language context, there is a ton of sensory overload. But think about it. These yogis and yoginis, these realized beings, because they have this wisdom is timeless. And no matter what era or what time it is, it is still purposeful. That practice from thousands of years old is still valid now. In fact, it cannot be more valid today than ever because at present we are in sensory overload and we don't even know how to avoid it. We can switch off our phones and we can uh, close our eyes, but there will still be all kinds of sensory stimuli. So that is point number one, the practice of pratyahar. But I'm using the term sensory overload and reducing the sensory overload so that we at present can understand it too. But the yogis and yoginis practice the pratyahar not just for the sake of reducing sensory overload because this was a bridge. Pratyahar is a bridge between pranayam, which is when the breath becomes, when the breath attains four qualities, becomes smooth, quiet, even, and prolonged. Smooth, quiet, even, and prolonged. If you want to think of it as a visual, think of a stream of oil. How smooth it is, how quietly it flows from one vessel to another, how uninterrupted is the flow. And you can prolong it. You can distance the two vessels and still there will be the smoothness. That is called pranayam. But how to transform that breath, that smooth breath, which has this calming effect on the mind into focus, which is called the next step of yoga, which is called concentration. So the bridge between concentration and pranayam is pratyahar. And this bridge has to be crossed because otherwise the breath, even though you may have 
ironed out the creases and the folds of your breath. But the moment the mind mind uh, connects with or uh, observes or interacts with any other stimulus, the breath is going to change. The breath is going to become what is called vritti. The breath is going to become fluctuation. And if the breath is going to become a fluctuation, it also affects the state of the mind. So to strengthen that smoothness of the breath, to maintain the consistency of the breath, we then practice shavasan as pratyahar, to act as a bridge. But that is not it. There is this another purpose of shavasan, and that is antyeshti. Antyeshti. And antyeshti means the last rites, the death ritual. It is practiced as a death ritual. It is practiced as a death rehearsal. It is practiced as a practice of conscious letting go. A practice of detachment. Not just sensory relaxation, not just physical relaxation, but consciously detaching. And that eventually becomes, in large scheme of life, a practice of letting go of all kind of We cannot wait that, oh, okay, when I will be 80, when I will be 90, then I will prepare for it. No, we have to practice micro doses of detachment on an everyday basis to be able to have, to transition gracefully, to transition with an acceptance attitude. That is what Shavasana is for. It is practiced as an antyeshti. Apart from the obvious, or in my mind, to some extent, obvious, benefit, which is Sheethali Karan, which is relaxation. Okay. So I have so many questions. I'm, I'm, I'm like scribbling on this paper right now. Okay. So let me just go back to what you said and just, and recap and make sure that I'm understanding. So you're saying that the purpose of Shavasana is the practice of Pratyahar which is that withdrawal of the senses going inward and using the breath as the way to do that, right? Focusing on the breath. And that is the bridge between pranayam and which would be meditation or concentration, right? That, that would be the bridge between those two. Because the, the question that came to me when you were describing so eloquently and beautifully what pratyahara is, was that it's meditation that that is meditation or or that is our understanding perhaps our confused understanding of what of meditation is and what dawned on me as you were saying all of this is that perhaps many of us have been practicing or starting with meditation as and it's actually too advanced for many of us if if we think about it from the way that you're describing it that perhaps it's really Shavasan that we should be starting with as the practice, as sort of the beginning practice to withdraw the senses. Because for so many people, meditation is difficult. They they find such a hard time. I'm always asked this, Dr. Kumar saying, how do you meditate? I can't meditate. I don't get it, right? There's all these questions. And perhaps I've been leading them astray to think that they can start with a meditation practice if this is the bridge. So I've gone in a big circle, but that's what kept coming to my mind that perhaps we're all starting in the wrong place in the sense of there's no right or wrong, but perhaps we need to back up a little and start with this practice. 
Yes, I, don't know I what you think about that. no, no. I think uh, you have caught it just at the right place. Uh, it reminds me, Avanti, of a moment with one of my teachers several years back, where I was sitting and what I thought I was practicing meditation, sitting in cross-legged position, holding my hands in mudra, sitting upright. And in my mind, whatever my limited understanding of meditation at that point was, I was practicing that. And I remember just a subtle whisper. My teacher stepped from the seat walked towards me and I did not know any of that. I'm just assuming all of this must have happened. And I just hear this whisper in my ear. Relax. Meditation begins with relaxation. And my teacher just put the hand on my hand and relaxed the tension in my fingertips, which I was holding so tight thinking that I'm supposed to hold it tight and I'm supposed to be like this. That moment changed the trajectory of my life by changing the understanding of meditation, that it begins with letting go. It begins with this softening. It begins, of course, in the seated position, there is this duality of alertness in your spine, alertness in your skeleton, and complete relaxation in your muscles, complete relaxation. in the limbs, may I say. But of course, that sticking, you know, uh, meditation is when, and I'm going to again give a food example, my dear listeners, is, is when you put some a cake for baking and you pull it out and you put a fork in it and it comes out clean. No, no attachments. That is meditation. And if you take it out too early, then it would be sticky. To to relax that sticky net, you need to let it be, isn't it? That letting it be is Shavasana. In that, there is so much of processing, so much of mental digestion, so much of resolution that is happening that it prepares the mind to let go. And it prepares the mind to be able to focus because otherwise, when we concentrate, when we when we do, we can only do practices that lead up to concentration. The techniques are only involved until con- concentration. Meditation is a consequence of it. It's almost like, you know, there is a seed and you plant it and you uh, put in good soil and you put water and you allow good sunshine. And then the consequence is the blooming. That is meditation. Meditation is the consequence of these practices. There is no technique for meditation. There is techniques applied only up till concentration, which is dharana. But in order to concentrate, we have to be relaxed. For example, sometimes when I'm sharing something or teaching something and I say, listen carefully or look at it carefully, the moment someone hears these terms, they would either pull their ears forward or squint the eyes thinking that, oh, I'm concentrating. No, that is tension. That is your building tension at the end of a sensory organ, thinking that everything is going to become laser beam. No, only if you sit back and completely relax the tension, that is when that real absorption happens. And Shavasan teaches us how to do that. It teaches us 
how to redirect, how to not be reactive, neither be responsive, neither be reactive or be responsive, just be. And the tool that helps us be the constant anchor point, that which is our constant companion from the first moment we someone announced that we are alive till the last moment someone will announce that we are alive that constant companion is called breath but it's a beautiful word in sanskrit it's called swara swara means your own companion your own partner it's that that is the only only companion that you constantly come back to in shavasan and it it creates the pathway for everything else. So you can you can just let pratyahar be, you know, practice shavasana as pratyahar just for sensory relaxation or just for physical relaxation. But if you are a yoga practitioner and you wish to move forward, then it is the right recipe, as you mentioned, the preparation shavasana is just the right practice and meditation happens after that. Yeah. So what I'm understanding so clearly is your statement before that Shavasana is both a practice and a state. I'm getting that right now because what you just described is that you can actually do Shavasana in any pose. In essence, you don't have to necessarily be lying down as long as you have gravity, right? Am I right about that? So you could be sitting in a chair or on the floor, probably the lying down, you know, supine is probably the most relaxation in the sense that you don't have other sensory uh, stimulus coming in where you're trying to hold yourself upright, et cetera. But is that true that you could do Shavasana sitting up? So it's not even so much the pose, but the, the state of being the energy of it, because I have this conversation so much with fellow mentors and friends and students about trying to explain that the pose is just a vehicle for so many other things. It's a form of the body, but that's not the end purpose of it. Yes. So I have a couple of things to add here. Mm -hmm. One is absolutely Shavasana is all the three things, a position, a practice, and a state. It is all the three. It is just the position. You can also still say, oh, you're practicing Shavasana. And no one can outside from, can see and understand what's going on until and unless there are electrodes connected to your brain, connected to see the rapid eye movement, connected to see the muscular activity. Until and unless someone is actually reading that, they cannot see the process of Shavasana that you might be mentally following. And third is the state. So it is all the three, the position, the process, which is the practice, and the eventual state. So yes, that that is correct. Second part about the position, the big question about the pose or the posing. So one thing that is important about Shavasana, at least in the beginning, is that it has the, the erector muscles in the spine, which keeps us upright, they need to relax because that is where the entire nervous system is connected. So that part has to relax with the gravity. Now, traditionally, the Shavasana position that is described in Kiran Samhita and Hatha Yoga Samhita, which are classical yoga texts, is supine, lying down on the back. 
But it is absolutely okay for someone to practice it laying down on the abdomen, prone position, laying down on the belly, for example, in Makarasan, which is crocodile pose, or even laying down on the side, you know, bending the knees, which is called fetal position in yoga, the Garbhasan, or just gently bending the knees to the side and laying down. Or it could be declined where you can prop your spine, let's say someone is bedridden and cannot, uh, you know, cannot change the body position. You can prop the spine up, you can prop the upper body up, but the spine is still relaxed with the gravity because it is supported. The question is, I think what I heard was seated on the chair. You can practice seated on the chair as long as you're leaning forward. So if you have a table in front of you and you prop things up so that you can completely relax your chest and head on it, as long as you're giving support to your spine sideways, in front, on the back, seated or laying down, you can practice Shavasana. I, you should not practice, in my limited awareness, Shavasana in upright position. Because in the process of Shavasana, what's happening is your, your brain enters into that non-REM cycle, non-rapid eye movement, where there is for some time being, and then goes into at times even rapid eye movement, where in rapid eye movement cycle, there is a time when there is almost like the sleep paralysis, when we are in the dream state where all the muscles relax. And if you were be sitting upright, you might actually tip off and hurt yourself. So there has to be support, and it is okay then if it is seated or lying down. If it is supine or prone, it is right side or left side. There are, we can keep going deeper. There is a value in lying down on the right versus the left, but I'm not going to go into it right now. <laughs> the point that I'm trying to make is that in Shavasana, your musculature relaxes. And therefore, the safety must be kept in mind. But I hear you, Avanti, the point that you're trying to make or the question that you are going towards that at times we get so stuck in the pose that we forget that it is eventually to induce a state. However, what I would like to also add is let us also not create fantasies that we are there yet. That are we there yet where I can say that I'm doing, I'm walking, but my mind is absorbed in samadhi or I'm walking and I'm meditating. Am I there? I think each, I cannot answer that question for you. I can completely answer that for myself. And therefore, I would suggest and request and urge the listeners to, from time to time, ask this question and be truthful to yourself in your practice. Because if we are not truthful in our practice, it is no one's loss. It's only our loss. That is why the first two steps of yoga is ahimsa and satya, nonviolence and truthful. Keep them in mind. That is your foundation of yoga and therefore apply it to asana. Don't go so, become so obsessed with the pose and the posing that you end up hurting yourself. And at the same time, don't think that only when you will achieve that pose that you've seen someone else doing, that you have seen someone else performing, that only then you will receive the benefit. The benefit is in the process. Right. And I, I so appreciate what you're saying, because I think what, what you're also getting at is that there is a reason for the pose. There's also a state of being that is being achieved through that body position, right? And so there's, it's almost like you need to balance or try to balance both things in your head and not be attached to the, the bodily pose, the, the, 
the effect on the physical body, right? But also understand there is a there's an effect going on in the emotional body, the mental body, the energetic body. It's all happening when you're doing these practices. That's the power of these practices. That's why they've existed for thousands of years. That's why Western science finds them so fascinating and is doing all this research because they see that there is something going on here that is beyond just understanding sort of from a scientific view. There's so much more, right? And I think that sometimes, you know, the science is a way for many of us in the Western modern world to sort of enter that doorway of understanding, right? It helps our logical brain say, oh, I get it. Shavasan helps me to rest or helps me to get into blank, you know, brain waves. And I know that those brain waves do X, Y, and Z for my benefit. Okay, this is good. And then there's an experience that happens, right? And you go deeper, you go beyond the science, but it's the doorway. Absolutely. And I, I'm so grateful for all the researches that are going on related to the effect of these traditional yogic breathing practices and the postures. And, you know, there is so many different styles of yoga coming out of it, seeing the benefit of holding the pose and then, you know, practicing it as uh, the the yoga in which you hold the pose, which was always the truth, which was always the practice of these poses. At the same time, it is also important to understand and underline that these vidyas or wisdom streams like yoga and Ayurveda, they were not called vijnana. Vijnana means the applied science, which is proven in the in a laboratory. They were called jnana, which means that which is proven in your experience. For example. We can study the effect or the benefits of Shavasana through by studying the brain, by studying the muscular activity, by studying the cardiovascular activity, by studying the biorhythm. But what about the piece of consciousness? How do we study consciousness? How do we study conscious? What is happening? We can understand, oh, through concentration combined with relaxation, this is the effect and how the hemisphere activity shifts from here to here, from right to left, from back to front. We can understand all of that. But what about the factor of consciousness? Because the focal point of yoga is consciousness. The focal point of yoga is not just brain. It's not just body. It's not just uh, physical health. It's also not just emotional health. It is that. So I think keeping that in mind is also beneficial. And at the same time, the gratitude towards something so ancient that can be so many benefits around it can, can be proved in a scientific way. That is so exciting for me to see that because then it kind of gives you a language to communicate that, hey, look, these are the benefits because you cannot, it's something so abstract as consciousness. How do you put that in words? Right, exactly. So you're getting that benefit. But again, it's very hard to describe that, to quantify that for somebody else you're communicating with. And when you can talk about, let's say, brainwaves in this, in this instance of what we're talking about with regard to sleep and rest and shavasana, right? Meditation, all of these things, we know there's brain activity and what those brain activities, waves, 
actually correlate to as far as our being in this plane. It allows that discussion, it allows that understanding, and you get all of the other benefits as well that come along for the ride. <laughs> as you develop, as you grow, you start to understand those deeper levels of meaning. You know, I have many teachers who've always told me that there are many layers, many levels of, of meaning, right? There's that first level, second level that encompasses the first level, and then the third level that encompasses the first and second. And it's all about the growth. And you start wherever you are, first level, go to the second, go to the third. And that's how you grow and learn and evolve also spiritually. So I think what you're saying is so true. This feels like a good place to, to jump into sort of what are some of the benefits from this understanding that we can communicate about um, of Shavasana. And then we're going to go into sort of does it affect rest, sleep? relaxation. We can talk about this all together because I think it's really interesting. There are a couple of things that are coming to my mind in context with the value of Shavasana, the purpose of Shavasana in current times, in present times. Mm -hmm. One of that is related to sleep. Sleep is, you know, it has been announced as an epidemic by WHO, World Health Organization. And I think if we start conversing with five people randomly around us, at least one person will share about the, the discomfort or challenges related to either falling asleep or staying asleep or waking up not rested, waking up groggy. One out of five persons around us right. will share about it. And what I have seen is that Shavasana can be that external circadian rhythm regulator for our body and mind to regulate the sleep-wake cycles, especially for people who either because of an existing physical condition or because of stress or because of the nature of their job or because of shift hours, because of the shift work, because of whatever reason their sleep-wake cycle is disturbed. The practice of Shavasana, practicing it right before going to bed, you're almost training the body how to go there because of, because of mental stress or because of physical stress or mental exhaustion, physical exhaustion. For whatever reason, what becomes a blockage in, in letting go, because sleep is nothing but letting go, right? That, and what is letting go in, in yoga? Pratyahara. So this becomes an essential tool, a, a practical tool, uh, a very tangible, progressive, systematic process of consciously letting go, to go into that state, to usher that state. And so it can become that circadian rhythm regulator. And we know by understanding circadian rhythm that through the circadian rhythm, it connects to our uh, peripheral clock that is that that manages our energy levels our internal clock which manages our digestion our brain clock that manages the sleep weight cycles everything is basically reset at the time of sleep so when we go to sleep instead of of course we can try all other methods but i think this is a method where you are invoking your body's intelligence. You're training your own body without an external prop how to fall asleep. So one of the benefits that I really see 
that Shavasana can be an external, exogenous, external circadian rhythm regulator. And the second thing is, without doubt, the sensory overload. We don't even realize, we, we don't even realize, you know, right now, wherever you are, dear listeners, you know, there is a sound that you can hear. And that is a sound that you don't even know that is that has become like a white white noise that you don't even recognize as present. But that does not mean your nervous system is not absorbing it. But that that subtle sound of the dishwasher or of the dryer or of the or of the air conditioning unit, that thermostat click, all these sounds are present. So we cannot separate ourselves from this external sounds. No external sounds and I remember my teacher used to say, and that again really helped me reorganize so many things in my own home, is that every object is a thought. That every object that you look around, wherever, and I'm speaking through you, Avanti, to the listeners, that just wherever you are right now, just look around you and see if you can see anything without mentally thinking about its shape or color or when did you buy it or the texture of it or the name of it anything that you see you can name it in some form or the other that it produces a thought in your mind it is a vritti and in yoga that thought is called a vritti that it disturbs that homeostasis that equilibrium of the mind because it interferes so how much can we do to shed this sensory overload? I don't know. I mean, if whatever we can, we should. But I think that is where Shavasana comes in. It's one of its benefits is that sensory relaxation, that sensory pause. And that to me, if I give a, again an example from everyday life is we, when, we hear, when we wear the glasses, you know, whether it's prescription glasses or sunglasses, I'll give you a visual and see how you like it. You have your prescription glasses or you have your uh, sunglasses and there are finger marks on it and there are watermarks on it and there is dust on it. Now put them on. How do you like it? Do you like what you see? Do you like how you are seeing it? That is what happens through these apertures, sensory apertures, eyes, ears, nostrils. We, we, have so much impressions on them on an everyday basis. We gather so many sensory impressions. Some we like, some we cringe at, some we dislike, some we hate, but we don't deal with it. These are like those finger marks and dust and that water droplets on your on the on the screen of your sensory organs. And Shavasan is that cleanser, is that vibe that cleans it all and allows you to see clearly, not just through your eyes but also through your insight. It's not just something that's clearing a physical lens. It's also building up discernment because it's helping you process all that emotions that come in the way. Whew, dropping so much knowledge. I can't even keep up right now. One second. That is amazing. Your examples are so, so beautiful because they are so engaging of in, in the way that you understand what you're talking about, because many of the concepts that you're talking about are quite difficult at times to understand. And your examples make it so much easier. I just, you're a brilliant teacher. I, I'm, I'm always in awe of you, um, Indu. It's amazing. Okay, so wait, I have a question then. Because what you described to me, right? So you said Shavasan can be beneficial for sleep for all the reasons we, you just talked about. And then also for 
this sensory overload for, for the relaxation of the sensory overload. Is that rest? Because let's get into this idea of sleep versus rest, because rest from my medical understanding, my limited understanding is relaxation is the ability to shift, to downshift from a sympathetic state into a parasympathetic state, that vagal stimulation, right? Which most of us in the modern world cannot do and, and have a hard time because we're on sensory overload, quite literally. And so to me, that is rest, is that when you create these practices to take a moment to downshift yourself throughout the day, that is how you regulate your nervous system and prevent or, or downshift inflammation, all, all of the medical things we can talk about. But that is to me, rest, relaxation versus sleep. Is that, am I getting somewhere here? Is that, it, so could Shavasana be for both? The way I understand, if there is a different word that we are using to explain the same thing, it has to, without doubt, convey, convey a different idea. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, there is no need for another word. It can be a synonym, but it is not equal to. It is a positive, it is simply pointing towards one of the commonalities, but essentially there is something different about it. Otherwise, there is no need for a different word. So keeping that in mind, rest and relaxation from my limited point of view are two different things when we talk about Shavasana. Rest, as you mentioned, that it is the parasympathetic activity through the medical point of view, through the uh, understanding of the body, the stimulation of the vagal system. However, we can also have that parasympathetic activity when we are doing something monotonous, mindless, and we just keep doing that. Then also there is that alpha brainwave production that is equal to parasympathetic activity. That is not what Shavasana is. It is a deeper, deeper than rest, and therefore it is relaxation because there is that, because even though I may be sitting and looking at something and looking at nothing, and for that moment, because there is not engagement to the external sensory stimuli, I may have a parasympathetic response in my body, but that is not what Shavasana is. Shavasana is deeper than that because there is a conscious interjection. It is not just a passive state of lying down. You are conscious, even if you're hearing the instructions, if there is a guided relaxation, whether it is auto-suggestion or you're listening to something, you have to follow that. There is a conscious systematic pathway. That is where I differ, that relaxation is a conscious, systematic, voluntary unfolding. Versus rest that can happen, I'm lying down in a lounger or I'm lying down in a hammock and I can experience rest, right? I can listen to some music and the result of it is I can feel that parasympathetic activity. The difference in Shavasana is you're consciously following a pathway and you're staying on that path. You're not just passively a receiver of something, you're actively engaging, participating, conversing with that rest process. There is a conscious involvement, there is a conscious desire, there is a conscious goal of letting go. And to me, that that matters, that, that, the, that process really, really is different. And therefore, the effect is also different. It is not just at the level of parasympathetic activity in, in Shavasana, it is even at the level of brainwave modulations 
or brainwave frequency, it is not just related to alpha brainwave. It is also related to theta brainwave, which is somehow associated with rapid eye movement, which is dream state of mind. And therefore, at times in certain shavasanas, you will hear there is guided imagery to consciously induce that rapid eye movement state. So it is not just limited to alpha. It is not just limited to parasympathetic activity. It is going deeper. It is it is slicing. It is going deeper, uh, deeper than the physical body. Yeah, no, I'm getting what you're saying. So what I'm thinking about from a brainwave activity sort of, let's say, sequence is that, you know, gamma is when you're in intense concentration, focus, learning right? Those are the fastest brainwaves. That's you're wide awake and you're focused and concentrated. And then you go into beta, which is still problem solving, starting to, you know, you're engaging. It's not as fast as gamma. And alpha is when you go into that relax, recharge, right? Which you are talking about when we're talking about how Shavasana is sort of that bridge. It starts to take us to the alpha, theta, delta, states, right? Which are further down. But what I think you're saying is that rest is more of a little bit higher up from alpha. It's in that beta. It's you're still, you know, you're resting some part of the physical body, maybe the emotional body, the mental body. When you are in Shavasana, it's a very specific conscious pathway that you are going down. So it is a deeper straight state of relaxation, or even that you could say a deeper form of rest that is leading to relaxation, to sleep, to higher states of consciousness, et cetera, et cetera, right? We can go down that path, but that's how I'm thinking about it. Sort of where you're going and how it's affecting your brain activity. Because here's what's interesting about this is that when we meditate, right, we know that the brain actually goes into gamma state which is the highest brain activity, which is the fastest frequency of full awake concentration, intense focus, right? So it's almost like it's like circular. It's not linear in any way or going down and up like a wave. It's almost circular. It's like as you go deeper and deeper, you actually are having higher and higher brain activity, which is fascinating. Sorry, I may have gone off on a tangent, but It's really interesting because when you're saying that, it's not linear at all. In fact, see, look at it. That relaxation then becomes the foundation for gamma. That can either be gamma in the lying down position, delta and gamma, that happens in the state of yoga nidra, or when seated, that happens in the state of meditation. So yes, that is why shavasana is a foundation, because it allows you to that uh, baking of that cake, baking of the, the of your mind, not just of your experiences, to come to a point of detachment, so that there is more clear, in sense, clear activity, more focused activity, but with the foundation of relaxation. Absolutely, that is that is so important to understand, and therefore, I think that sometimes. Rest is also, in in ordinary sense, not in medical sense, it is understood by many of us that, okay, if I'm going to take a vacation, I'm going to take a rest. Um, that, 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 that is restful for me. That is care for me. Or I'm going to go for a massage. Or I'm going to go for, I'm not going to touch my phone for the next few hours. That is like a break. That's kind of rest for me. 
the difference between that non-doing, when you're not doing anything, as you mentioned, that you may physically not be doing anything and that kind of induces a state of rest and you're consciously not doing anything, okay, not touching your phone, digital rest, uh, not engaging in social media, social rest, or uh, taking a spa spa night, that is the spa rest, or a vacation, that is a vacation rest. You can have all kinds of rest. Even you, you take a break from a certain kind of food, right? And that is your digestive rest. So you can have so many different kinds of rest. And my mind is now going on a tangent, Avanti. No, this is great. All these, all these different rests, let me tell you, are, are a part of Indian culture in some ways. There are, I remember growing up in a joint family, my mother used to fast on certain kind of grains and dairy on certain days, once in a week. That was digestive rest. I remember once in a week, she used to have few hours of silence. That is that is really motor activity rest. Uh, you know, there there were all these different. And I remember at that time on television there was no this privatization of different yes, channels. Yes. There was only Doordarshan, which is national TV. <laughs> that used to stop working. The TV used to be just a gray screen um, after a certain time in the evening. That was digital rest. You know, there there are all these rests that were naturally present, which now we are curating in our lifestyles because everything is so available all the time that we have to actually, with discernment and with a lot of patience and a lot of um, decision, conscious decision-making, acknowledge the, the effect it has with all these things present, the effect it has on our focus, on our relaxed state of mind, that we have to, have these kind of rests. The difference in Shavasana is that it is something that you are inviting, integrating in your everyday life. You're not carving a day, a week, an evening once in a time, uh, once in a month for rest, but you are integrating it in your everyday life. So you don't go to the point of exhaustion, burnout, breakdown, so that it is balanced. It is like not just homeostasis, but you're also focusing on allostasis. You're also thinking in advance that I need to do that because tomorrow will be another day of physical, mental, emotional activity. How do I already balance it? How do I keep in mind allostasis and reduce reduce that allostatic load and therefore practice. So I think Shavasana is, you know, in yoga, there is just two foundations of practice. One is Abhyasa, which is constant practice. And one is Vairagya, which is constant letting go. If we look outside, the nature does that. There is day, which is constant practice. And there is night, which is constant letting go. And in, in yoga, there is, I think the most, I if I go back to my childhood, one of the most foundational basic practices of yoga that I remember was Surya Namaskar, which was sun salutation, that, which, was, which is kind of a parallel or a tangible practice of Abhyasa, constant practice, and Shavasana on the other end, the practice of constant letting, constant letting go. So to me, this is balanced. This is integrating. There, that is where it is different. It is integrated in your lifestyle and it is it becomes a part of your everyday life. And therefore, you don't just emphasize on the value of physical relaxation, but you also emphasize and understand the value of the mental processing and emotional processing. And at the same time, you keep your eyes on the truth, the truth. 
that we are all going to leave this body. And how do I prepare for that? How do I every day prepare for that? How do I every day accept it? Not just for myself. I'm not just saying when I talk about death, I'm not just talking about the passing of the individual who is practicing Shavasana, but coming in terms at peace with the idea of death. So that when we lose a loved one, of course, the pain, the suffering, the grief, the loss will all be there. But when we have this everyday acceptance of the idea of death, it is not a shock. It is different than the rest. And all of your examples, I was I was giggling over here because I've had so many of the same experiences with my mom, my dad, my my elders of all of these different things. And Durdarshan, Darshan, when you said that, I just started laughing because my grandfather used to watch that in India. Durdarshan, for uh, the listeners, was the Indian news program that used to come on and it would just be a brief time of TV and then the, that's all that would be on the TV. It was like that one program and then it would be gray. So that was back in like the 70s. I mean, before the 70s, but as far back as the 70s when I used to go as a child to India. So anyway, more more information than you all need. We could keep talking because there's so much here and we probably will have to do another episode. But just so that we can give some really practical tips to the listeners. How do you do Shavasana? What are some tips that you can give in your experience as such a wise student, as you say, who has been practicing for so long? What would be some things that you could suggest to the listeners as far as preparation or, you know, how long do you do it? How do you come out of Shavasana? When is the good time of the day? Those types of things. Because I know that these are questions. Because if I'm listening to you right now, which I am, or I'm a listener, I'm thinking I have to do this. This is I, I now I understand why this is so important. This is not taking a little nap at the end of my yoga class, but that's okay if that happens. But I understand the deeper meaning, the the higher level of truth of why this is so important. So how do I do it? That's the question. Yes. One before I go into that, not a wise student, just a student, you know. Wise is very, very heavy. I'm I I I I need the space for error because I'm a human being. I know that I'm going to error. So just a student who is learning and sharing along the way. Okay, now coming to Shavasana, what are some of the things that you can do that can be helpful to prepare for Shavasana? There is a practice or a group of practices that are laid out in Ayurvedic text, which is called Ratri Charya, that is night routine. Now, we cannot go into the detail of that in, the, in this podcast right now, but I can direct you to somewhere where you can read about it. So there is this, uh, there is this book that I released uh, recently. It is called Soma, 100 Heritage Recipes for Self-Care. And there is a chapter dedicated to five essential night care practices. I would highly recommend that. And one of them is relaxation, this guided, self-guided or guided through an, a recording, through a, um, yeah, through, through a recording, uh, listening to it. But that care night, pay emphasis to what you do in the last half an hour before going to bed. Let's just start with that. And if you want to understand what to do in those last, in that last half an hour, please read the book and you will find the details there. That is point number one. That's linked in the show notes, everybody. So. That will be linked. Thank you so much, Avanti. Of course. Uh, 
The second thing that I would suggest that is really, really beneficial when it comes to uh, Shavasana, when to practice it, you can practice it any time of the day, right upon waking up. If you wake, woke up tired, it means your, your brain has not rested. Your nervous system has not rested. Your internal organs are not rested. Begin, with, begin your day by listening to a, by following a 30 minutes or 10 minutes or 15 minutes guided relaxation on the bed itself. It's okay to do it on your bed. If the purpose is just relaxation, you can practice it any time of the day. If I have to choose one time, I would say definitely practice it in the mid-afternoon when we have that energy dip after meals, that would be a really good time to combine the nap with Shavasana. And if you have problem falling asleep, you can also do it before going to bed. Eat, and it's absolutely okay if you end up snoring. It don't, don't feel bad because sometimes we feel bad that, oh, I was snoring or I fell asleep. No, the purpose of this Shavasana for you is to support falling asleep, to so remove that guilt. Be clear in your mind why you are doing it. And then you won't feel that embarrassment, that guilt related to it. That is why you are doing Shavasana right now. So you can, you can do it any time of the day, but preferably upon waking up midday or before going to bed. Those are really great timings. And sometimes your entire yoga practice can be just Shavasana. It does not have to be two minutes at the end. It can be the entire practice. That is about when to do it. Um, how to practice it? I'm going to give you five steps, five simple steps. One, whatever position you give to your body, become aware of that position as if you're drawing an outline. So that really helps your mind be contained in that space. So you brought your awareness to time and space both simply by drawing an outline. That is position number one. Make it as much comfortable as you can. Use whatever props are needed. Don't worry. And don't also anticipate that, you know, yesterday I used those, so I'm going to use the same today. Be present. What do you need today? That is number one. Position. Become aware of your position. Make it comfortable. Number two. Be, now scan your body. Step number two. If you're not following any external guided relaxation, just scan the body and observe the duality areas, tense and relaxed areas. Just do that. Nothing else. Mentally mark what are those areas. Step number three. Now establish even breath. Your breath is like an iron. Wherever now you found whatever the tension creases and tension knots are, bring your awareness to that and iron it. Equal ratio breath for as long as it is needed. Most probably by this time you will be, you will be asleep or snoring. But if you surpass that, step number four, bring your awareness as if you're gathering it towards your heart, as if you're drawing it from all the directions into your heart. Step number five, let it stay there. That's it. That is your simplest practice of Shavasana. But if you would like to follow some guided relaxations, I have many recorded albums and tracks that are available on iTunes, on Amazon Music, and some very special ones which are just available through my website. So you can, if that is helpful, that is also one of the ways. Yeah. Thank you. Those are beautiful. And we will have all of those linked in the show notes for the listeners. So don't worry if you're like, where, are, where do I find all these? It'll all be linked for you in the show notes. And then after Shavasana, is there some way to come out of Shavasana? If you haven't fallen asleep or if it's guided or is there something that you should be doing when you are coming out of it to really gain the benefits of it? <laughs> Two answers. Hmm. Two, not one. If you're doing Shavasana, let's say, just after waking up and now you want energy in your body, 
turn over to your left side for a few minutes and then get up. So it will keep your body in that energized mode. And then you get about, do your business, whatever is, the, whatever is your list of things to do in the day. But if your focus is for the Shavasana to lead into meditation, whatever was your position, turn over to the left side, be there for a minute or two, then sit up and whatever meditation concentration method you use, a mantra, a mudra, just focusing on breath, chakra meditation, whatever it is, use that to go into meditation. That is the best way to come out of it. But that will only become clear when you understand why are you doing it. Hmm. I'm I'm at a loss for words. I I'm going to go do shavasana after I'm done with this interview with you. It's been a long week. Um, thank you. That that was an amazing discussion of of something that I think is so important. I learned so much from you because. I don't think that I understood either. I know that I didn't understand. I mean, I've been doing all the reading and the learning and researching before I spoke to you, but your ability to explain things in this way is just, it's such a gift. It's such a gift. So thank you for sharing your gift with my audience. I so appreciate you and am so grateful that I'm connected to you. Thank you so much for doing this with me. I hope that we can do another episode in a few months and we'll go deeper on another subject. I'm sure we'll find something. I've already written down 10 ideas, so I'll I'll send you a message. Thank you, Indu. Thank you so much for having me, Avanti. And I really appreciate your um, sincere ear, my dear listeners. I sincerely hope you benefit from it. My good wishes to you on your path in your life. Thanks again for listening to The Healing Catalyst. If you love what you heard, please hit follow and pass it along to a friend. And if you're feeling really inspired, please rate and review so that others can find this podcast more easily. To learn more, head to avantikumarsingh.com. And to connect with me directly, find me on Instagram at avantikumarsingh. I'll be back next week and hope that you will be too. Until then, remember, with the right catalyst, you have the power to activate your own healing because healing starts within.